Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. As usual, we're continuing through our daily Bible reading plan. If you do not have that daily Bible reading plan, you can simply throw a comment in there and ask for it. We will send it to you and somehow get it to you. You can always email us at our church office at Northwest Church. We'd be glad to make sure that you get the Bible reading plan because our goal is to get everybody in the Word of God. That's the whole point of the Daily Word. It's not to listen to me. It's to somehow be inspired, each one of us, to be in the Word of God for ourselves. So today we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18. If you're following the daily Bible reading plan, you would also be reading 1 Samuel 26 and 1 Chronicles 24. But as you know, I usually either focus on the Old Testament or the New Testament. And since we locked hold of Matthew, we're just going to finish that book out and going Matthew 18 today, 19, and then 20 on Friday. So please do tune in each day because we're going to continue down going through this book together. And, uh, and I believe it's just such a blessing when you actually just walk through the Word. Instead of just topical, that's important for, for deep studies at times, but we're just simply trying to go through the Word of God together. So do follow us and do share that with anybody as well. Let's go ahead and pray. And uh, if you didn't open your Bible to Matthew 18, you can do that as well. Pray with me, would you? Father, we do thank you today for your Word. And we ask, God, that you would open up our eyes, open up our hearts to receive what you have for us in your word. And we do pray, God, as we would ask every day, that you would lead us in such a way that we would follow and obey what your word says. Give us the grace to obey. Even, even now, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. We recognize that we'd only, we don't only need to know what your word says, we'd, we need your power to be able to live it. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done and all that you're doing. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation that we'll receive today through the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. What I'd like to do is basically just jump right into Matthew chapter 18, and let's go ahead and read verse 1. And I think we're going to get through most of it today, but we'll just see, because you never know with me. I might just keep talking, and all, all, all of a sudden we've gone through an hour, and I don't want to do that. So Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, and it says this, At the time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What a question that is. Now what it shows us about them, but also about our own hearts, because I think the disciples actually represent all of us. If we look at who they are, if we look at how they are, where they come from, their background, we can all really understand that we, we are represented fairly well by the disciples and their diversity. They asked Jesus this question, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It, it shows that, that, hidden, that hidden issue of selfish ambition. We all tend to have some it may look different, it may be different, but we have some. And the disciples certainly had some selfish ambition. They, at this point, had either known or were pretty sure that Jesus was the Messiah. He had confirmed that to them, that he was the Christ, the Anointed One. And so here they are having all these conversations among themselves. They desire to sit on his right 
and on his left as he comes into his kingdom. They still have the Jewish mindset of eschatology, where Jesus, at whatever point he was going to come into his kingship, he was going to come into his military political power, Israel was going to come alongside him to rule and to reign. And they figured, hey, they've, they've, they're right on the ground floor of the Messiah's coming into his kingdom. And so they're still thinking this way. They're not actually just asking about an afterlife per se. They're asking about the life that they, that they're living in right then. They think that in their eschatological view that Jesus is going to rise up any moment. They don't know, but they, they, he, he would actually do that at any moment and they would then have that place alongside him. And so they're thinking, Hey, there's 12 of us. Who's going to, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus obviously has an interesting answer for them because his version of greatness and our version of greatness is different. And we've got to know that. And what a word that is for us today, that everybody wants to be great, right? But greatness has got to be defined by God. Let's be honest. Every person does have greatness in them because we were made in the image of God. And those of us that follow Jesus are filled with the Spirit of God. So greatness, as defined by God, is certainly in each one of us. And sometimes you hear about uh, people, people will teach this, or there's books written about it in Christianity where people will say, there's greatness in you. The only question is, is what does greatness mean and who defines greatness? Well, Jesus actually defines greatness, and it's not the same as selfish ambition would make us believe. And that's important for us to realize. So Jesus responds to them by calling a child to himself, and he sets the child in front of them. And here's what it says in verse 2. He says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying here? He's actually going right back to the Beatitudes. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, he's, he's, he's sitting on the hillside there with his disciples. We believe many onlookers and observers begin to come and listen to Jesus as he was talking. He has many sermonettes, but the first are the Beatitudes. And the first one, Matthew 5, 1, is blessed are the, or 5, 2, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's another translation that says, blessed are those who know their need. Children are helpless. Children are dependent. In that culture, children were pushed off to the side. They were not prioritized. Now, hopefully we've learned, maybe not every culture, maybe not every person, maybe not every family, but hopefully we are learning or have learned that children are of priority in Jesus's kingdom and his mindset. Why? Because children are pliable, they're moldable, and we have that incredible opportunity to help them to become the absolute best that they could be, to know God, to walk with God, to understand truth, to know how to guard their minds and their hearts, to have purpose in this life and not just to waste it on futile things. Children are fantastic. They're not to be pushed off. They're to be brought in. Jesus brings a child in front of them. He shows them the child and says, unless you are converted to become like a child, not to be a child, but to become like a child, he uses the child as the illustration or the metaphor for our disposition before God in order to enter the kingdom. They want to be great, but Jesus is trying to flip their understanding. It's not about you rising up to be great. It's about you humbling yourself. If you do not humble yourself, you won't enter the kingdom. And if you don't stay humble, you won't be about the kingdom. 
this is really a crucial teaching and it's to dismantle selfish ambition, self-strength, and to really begin to trust God and understand Jesus came for us because there was nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to, to live before God, to be righteous in God's eyes. And so the way that we are saved is the same way that we sustain our walk with God. We humble ourselves because we need him. We stay in that place, that disposition. That is, that is the way of the kingdom. He goes on to say, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He's not talking about kids. Remember, he's using the children as a metaphor for the disposition and the heart that we are to have before God. Now he says, anyone who receives a ch- one such child in my name receives me. He's talking about the way that we receive one another, the way that we see one another, children of the kingdom, not just children. He's using them as a metaphor. So remember that. Sometimes in children's ministry or teaching, I've seen verses like these used saying, this is Jesus's value for kids. You can extrapolate that principle in a sense, but that's actually not the interpretation. So remember, what does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? So we're looking at what it means. It does not mean kids. He's talking about king's kids, kingdom kids. That can be any any age, but those that follow Jesus, those that are in the kingdom. He goes on in verse six, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, would it be better for him to have a heavy millstone around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea? Now, I wrote tons of stuff about this because quite frankly, it's just eye-opening that Jesus would say these types of things. But really, if you want to just sum up all of these verses before you get to verse 16, what you're going to see is in verse 1 through 5, Jesus talks about the humility required to enter the kingdom, which is like a child, child of the king. He goes on in this, what we've just read, is he basically goes on to say that anyone who welcomes this child is like welcoming me. So it's important how we see one another. It's important how we see brothers and sisters in Christ. That would be terminology that Paul would use, but children of the kingdom is sort of what Jesus is saying. Now, when we look at verses six through nine, Jesus is talking about the seriousness of personal sin and causing others to sin. Now he sets everything right. This is not about greatness that you're asking about. This is about being converted and being like a child. This is the way of the kingdom. This is how you enter the kingdom. This is how you live out the way of the kingdom. But he's, now he's talking about the seriousness of personal sin and how that destroys us from entering the kingdom, number one, but it also causes others to stumble. And I want to I read that again to you. Verse 6, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block will come. Now he says in verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now, these verses, again, the seriousness 
of personal sin. Jesus is talking about us stumbling, and he's talking about us causing others to stumble. Now, look back at what he says. If there's a person that causes his his kids, kingdom kids, to stumble, not just not just children, but kingdom kids, if we cause them to stumble or anybody causes them to stumble, it would be better that a millstone was tied around, around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now, a millstone is about 100 pounds, right? We understand that it was pulled usually by a donkey and it was crushing uh, the wheat or the grain and it, so they could make flour. That's what it was used for. It was something that you would see in a home. People had these millstones. It was a, a utensil, so to speak, that they would use in order to make things, make food. And so everybody understood this illustration. Everybody understood this metaphor. And also the Romans would use large stones in order to execute people, not only throwing them at them, but they would actually tie large stones around the necks and the bodies of people and throw them into the sea. So this was a form of execution. When Jesus used these words, everybody had this graphic illustration of how serious this really was. Now listen to this. It would be better. It would be better for this person to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea rather than them causing other ones to stumble because they're going to face Jesus. Now, I had this thought, and I think it's really important because we're living in a day where people, it's really popular to teach that there is no hell. And when I say hell, we'll use the word Hades or Gehenna. People actually use this terminology and say, well, if you look at the Bible and, and you look at when Jesus taught about hell, he's only really referring to that place like the dumps that's outside of the city where they would burn garbage. Whenever Jesus referred to Hades, whenever he referred to Gehenna as sort of that place, that metaphor he would use for an eternal place, he would use the natural understanding of that the dumps that were right outside of the city where people would take dead bodies and they would take garbage and they would burn it up. He uses that as a metaphor. And sometimes people today will say, well, Jesus wasn't really referring to some eternal destination of separation from God. He was actually just referring to the hell here on earth. That is such a crazy lie. Jesus, one third of the time, approximately when he taught, he was using these illustrations in their world, parables, hyperbole, metaphors. He was using these to help them understand eternal truths. So when he used Gehenna, when he used the, the dumps outside the city as a metaphor or an illustration of what hell would be like, this eternal destination, they, they understood that. They didn't necessarily have this full doctrine of hell like we do today. We have a lot more because we read Paul's letters. We read the apostles' letters. We read the book of Revelation. So we understand that Jesus brought fuller, a fuller picture of eternity. We know that the apostles did as well. And then the book of Revelation shows us the unfolding of the end times. So for us, we've got a full Old Testament, New Testament picture. But to suggest that hell is not some eternal separation from God is ridiculous because we know that it is. The Bible says that. But this is one of those verses that helps us see how serious that our sin is and how serious this place called hell is. Because Jesus says for those that cause the kingdom kids to stumble, it would be better if they just died. Now, here's the question. What is worse than dying? What is worse than dying? I'll tell you what's worse, having an eternity separated from God. That's worse. 
So for those that live in this perpetual state of causing other people to stumble, they will have a worse place than just dying. And that's Jesus is, he's exacerbating this. He's making this a very serious thing because it is. And so whenever there's this popular teaching about hell not being a real place and it really was just sort of the here and now and hell's where we live right now, I've heard that kind of teaching. If you haven't, God bless you, don't listen to it. It's garbage. That's what people don't understand. You can't read. This isn't Jesus just kind of trying to like make people feel it. He was trying to help them understand how serious this really was. So here in these verses, he's bringing a seriousness to personal sin and also causing other people to sin. He goes, in, he goes into saying, your personal sin will destroy you and you're also you're causing others to sin, which is your sin will cause others to be derailed, will be destroyed and others will be derailed. They won't get to where they are supposed to go. He wanted people to take it extremely seriously and so we should. And this is the reality if you're if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your leg causes you to sin, cut it off. That's a message that we need to hear right now. If there is something in our lives that is causing us to sin, we need to get rid of it. And we need to deal with it now, not later, not two weeks from now, not continue to hide it and act like it's not there, not live in denial. We need to get rid of it now because it destroys our life and it destroys the lives of others. The lie about our personal sin, where we think that we can get away with something, the first question is, why would we want to? Why would we want to get away with per any personal sin? We shouldn't want to. We shouldn't have any skeletons in the closet. We shouldn't be hiding whatsoever because all it does is destroy our lives. All it does is suck life right out of us, where we were meant to live an abundant life, a life to bring pleasure and glory to God Almighty who created us. It's his breath in our lungs. We're seeking to bring glory to God. When we sin and we allow sin to take its course in our lives, it just sucks the life right out of us and it's extremely serious. So we need to cut the hand off, not mutilate ourselves, but we need to realize that's how severe we've got to treat those things in our life. They do not deserve that place among us. They do not deserve that place in us. This isn't a shame message. This is a serious message about personal purpose and bringing glory to God, why we exist, what we're called to do, staying focused so that we can live this life to the fullest, not just to get personal enjoyment out of it. That's actually the way of sin. Sin will try to get fleshly enjoyment, personal enjoyment, and that will lead us down a very, very wrong path. And so it's very important for us to realize what is actually being said here. Jesus wants us to understand the ripple effect of our personal sin will affect other people. We cannot say that our sin won't affect people. It will affect people. Our sin will affect people. And by the way, let's stop looking at the sins of others all the time and let's start looking at where we are. Let's start looking at where our life is. Let's start looking at the choices we're making, the thoughts that we have. I can tell you this from personal experience. The more we focus on where other people are and what other people are doing, the less we're going to truly see ourselves. I believe that self-righteousness and pride, which is a terrible and profound sin, is where we are concerned and consumed 
more so with the repentance of others than our own repentance. It is always unhealthy for us to have that in our full view rather than being able to look in the mirror and say, God, if there be any wicked way in me, deliver me from it. And as God delivers us, we can be then helpful to help others as well. And that's really what he's talking about. But he goes from the seriousness of personal sin and causing others to sin into the perspective of the Father's heart. Look in verse 10 through 14. This is where Jesus talks about the Father's heart for those who are lost, which by the way is why we don't want to cause others to sin. Why is it so important? Well, here's why it's so important. Because God's Father heart is is so committed to his people or to the people in this world that he would send his one and only son, that he would leave the 99 and go after the one. And that's exactly what he says in verse 12. He says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on, on the mountain and go and search for the one who is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say he rejoices over it more than over the 99, which have not gone astray. So it is the will of your Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. He starts off by just saying how God's heart is. He wants us to have the same heart of God. When we do, when we have God's heart, we will not take our sin lightly. We will realize that our sin will destroy other people's lives. And why is that so important? Because it is absolutely the antithesis of God's heart for people. God's heart is after people. He's a heart full of rescue. We've seen the, the parable of the not only the lost sheep, but also the lost son. We know that God's heart is full of rescue, that when his son turns and says, I would be better off in my father's house after he squandered his inheritance, after he's living like an animal and he has this revelation that if I just go back to my father's house and I live as one of his servants, I would be better than this, this place of life that I'm in now. And as he sets himself towards home and goes back to his father, his father sees him from a long way off and starts to run towards his son. That's the heart of the father, not wanting to punish us, Punishment, judgment is last resort. That's what punishment is. It's last resort. It's not what God wants to do. It's what he has to do in order to prune us and do something better and greater in our lives. But God's heart first and primarily is full of rescue. And that's the picture of Christ. And so Jesus reveals the heart of the Father to his disciples because he wants us to have that very same heart, which is why we would not want to harm or cause others to stumble. This is how it's so serious, because when we cause others to stumble, we are in the opposite place of where God is, where God would go to whatever extent possible. He'd leave the 99 and he would go after the one. This was actually very common in Israel. Shepherds would leave their flock with whoever was there in order to find the one that went astray. They did this. It was a very common practice. People, when they heard Jesus say this, they go, oh, I get that. Shepherds normally and consistently did that, and he used that to illustrate the Father's heart. And the last part that we'll focus on today is verses 15 through 20. We won't have time for for verse 21 through 35. Actually, I've taught on that before. I have a teaching on that called um, Cultivating a Forgiving Heart. But I'll just go ahead and read to you verses 15 through 20. And he says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two 
more people with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. I believe this is a direct quotation from Deuteronomy, but this is quoted a few times throughout scripture. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, that's the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. And this is the gathered body, the gathered assembly of believers. And that, that wouldn't be like thousands like we have today. That would probably be more like 15, 20, 30 max. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be like everybody, but it'd be more like a house church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, as a tax collector, or maybe they would use the term pagan. Truly I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, the two of you, Two of you agree on earth about anything that may, they may ask. It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. Now, here's the deal. There's a lot going on here. But what we have is we basically have a reconciliation process that Jesus gives. Now, I want to just point this out. A lot of times people today have all these different opinions about how to bring restoration to relationship or how to walk through um, you know, an intervention of sorts. I don't know why we don't use the Bible. It, it just baffles my mind. It's almost like we sometimes treat the Bible like it's a preaching book for sermons that we can forget after the weekend rather than a manual for how to live life. This is the instruction manual for how you and I are supposed to work. If we wanna talk about reconciliation and we're not gonna use the Bible, then I do not know what makes us different as Christians than just anybody out here in the world. Usually when there's confusion over the process of restoration and reconciliation, it is because we are not reading what is clearly in the Bible. The Bible gives us really good wisdom and very clear principles on how God tells us to go about restoration and reconciliation. And it's very clear in this scripture about how to do that. Now that he's gone through how it is that we come into the kingdom, he talks to us about how serious personal sin is, how serious it is to cause others to stumble. He gives us the heart of the Father, and now he goes into the process of how we bring restoration among one another because truly we're gonna have conflict. And so instead of allowing our sin just to derail us from relationship with one another and the purpose that God has made for us, we need to follow the prescription of scripture. And so what does he say? And by the way, he gives this process in the context of the wandering sheep, all right? So when you read here in verse 15, if your brother sins, what he's talking to us about is in the context of the wandering sheep. Does not the shepherd leave the flock and go after the one? Okay, so now we understand that God does that, but he's commissioning us to do this. We need not understand the previous verses of leaving the 99 and go after the one, only in light of how God is. He's trying to teach us how to be. And so he's saying, if God would do this, so you need to do this. Leave your life of sin, don't cause others to stumble, be like your heavenly father, and by the way, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Now I want you to know what going after the one looks like. Going after the one does not mean we go snatch them up and drag them back to where we think they should be. It means that when we know the one has strayed away, by the way, stray away means sin. The one who has left the flock is living in sin. That's what that is referring to. It's not like the little lamb who just didn't know any better. Jesus actually means the one who strayed away, 
is walking away in their sin. And so how do we get them back? How do we help restore one in their sin and in their wandering? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question because he outlines that very process. Step one, and this is what he's saying here in verse 15 through 20. He says, tell the person their fault privately. There should be no lack of clarity whatsoever. They need to know what has been done. What sin did they commit? We need to do that. And by the way, it is wrong for us to withhold the sin that we have clearly seen someone commit and wait for them just to come. When somebody sins and strays away, we have as a church a responsibility to go to that person. Jesus tells us to go. There is, there is no piety. There is nothing good about us just, well, we'll wait for them to come to us. That is not what Jesus says. It doesn't matter your opinion, my opinion. What matters is what it says here. We go to them and we tell them their fault privately. Either we win them over because they repent or they don't listen. If they repent, we won them over and restoration can happen. If not, then we take, the step two is to take one or two more people with us and plead with them through accountability. I've been involved in this before where someone has not listened. And my only purpose was, it was not personal, it was to try to see somebody restored. In seeing somebody restored, my goal, my heart, for them was to hopefully get them back to a place where they would walk with God fruitfully and faithfully again. But that's not always the case. We can't coerce that. We can't make that happen. And so what ends up, what sometimes you need is we need other people there. You bring one or two more people. You tell them in front of them. Accountability has a way of, of helping or assisting opening the eyes of someone. Now, again, if that works, if the accountability now helps them, now you've won them over and you can restore them back to fellowship. Hopefully the, their life can get restored. The, the train can get back on the tracks. But if that does not happen, he says, now tell the matter to the church. Bring it before the church. We're talking about 10, 15 people, the gathered assembly, and tell them. Now, I want to be very clear because I've heard this taught before, like you tell them to the church and you know you put them out. This is not talking about shunning someone. When we tell the church, not thousands, okay, this would be like a small group in our context. When we tell a group or a gathered assembly, we are doing it for the purpose of that entire group of people being released to go after them, to go after the one, to see them restored. It is a whole church accountability in order to pursue that person. And he actually even says that right here. He says, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, why would we tell the church? To embarrass them? No. To shun them? No. To put them out? No. We tell the church because we are releasing the whole church to pursue that person. And we are sorry right now whenever this has not been done this way. When the church gets told because we look at that as the form of discipline and punishment. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the whole church is supposed to be activated in pursuing this person for the purpose of restoration. Why is it that we are so quick to shoot our own or kick people when they're down? That is not what he is talking about. And then he says, if they do not listen, this would be step four. If they don't listen to you, if they don't listen to two or three, if they don't listen to the church, 
treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. And once again, this does not mean that we shun that person. It means that we do not allow them to have a significant influence as though they are a brother or a sister. We do not allow them to have the same kind of fellowship, the same kind of voice, the same kind of influence. That's that tense moment where we allow a person to go the way that they're going. However, it also means that if they are a tax collector, if they are a pagan, if they are in their context a Gentile or sinner, whatever label, then they become an evangelistic prospect. Okay, there are people, and here's my creed, I never give up on anybody, but that does not mean that I don't change my disposition towards people. Sometimes the game has to change. Sometimes where I have someone, they've been a brother or a sister in Christ, and they've gone into something, and they've obviously cut off their ability to mutually edify, and so you go to them, you tell them they don't listen, you go with others, we grieve over that, they don't listen, we bring it to more, they don't listen, now everybody's activated to hopefully restore them back, they don't listen, so we have to now see them not as a brother or a sister, not in judging their eternal salvation because God knows that, but we see them as an evangelistic prospect we see them as somebody who needs to hear the, about the love of God. They need to repent and turn from their wicked way. They know that, but we see them in such a way where they do not have that same Christian influence in our lives. And that is what it is. They might say, well, you're judging me and you're not allowing me to, to talk to this person or that person. It may affect how they interact with us or our children or whatever, but that's just the consequence. And we don't do that out of punishment. We do that out of love. We do that out of love of, of those who would maybe give their ear or their heart to that person who's going down the wrong path. We have to make comments clearly. We have to help people around us understand that this person has made these choices. And so we are praying for them. We're going after them. And that may be offensive to that person, but the reality is, is they can no longer have that influence as a brother or a sister because we have to treat them like a tax collector or a pagan, because that's the way they're living their life. That's what this is about. It's not about shunning. It's about recognizing who is who. It's about recognizing who is going to help and who is going to hinder. And it's also about recognizing what level of restoration someone needs. It's not my job to judge a person's salvation, but it is my job to bring people into restoration and reconciliation. And there is no reconciliation without repentance. Repentance is something that we do vertical and we do it horizontal. A person has to be right with God in order for them to get right with each other. And this actually is a message for us today in our world. There is no reconciliation, friends. Listen to me carefully. None without us being right with God. If we're not right with God, we cannot be right with one another. The unrest that we feel in our day and in our age, it w this will not be satisfied without us coming to God. We need to humbly come to God. I've been praying lately, and I know we're in a, a series in the book of Jonah, which, by the way, is utterly prophetic. I mean, I didn't even realize how prophetic that it would be. I chose to preach through it some time ago, but I recognize that it's very profound and prophetic as I'm studying it for this weekend. I'm getting ready for a message. I'm going to talk about refinement through confinement. Come on, this is Saturday and Sunday. Get ready. But I've recognized that after this series, I also want to focus on the words of Jesus to his church, because I believe that Jesus wants to position us. And we see in the book of Revelation that Jesus speaks to his churches in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And I believe there's some profound messages for us as we humble ourselves, 
This is a moment we do not want to miss. Reconciliation can come into the world through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When we, re, when we repent and we get right with God vertically, then we can get right with one another horizontally. We can have reconciliation, whether that's among brothers and sisters, whether that's healing in our land, in our country, or, or throughout the world. It comes first because we're right with God, and it comes second as we get right with one another. It's just not possible. It is not possible without going through Jesus. You cannot, the Bible's very clear. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We look at that as salvation, and that's true. No one can come to the Father, but I'll tell you something else. No one can have that, what the Father gives, that exchange, except they go through Jesus. What does Jesus give? He gives heart transformation. He gives reconciliation among brothers and sisters. He gives reconciliation among races. He gives healing of the wounds of the past and history. We cannot have that unless we go through Jesus where we have divine exchange from the Father who gives us what we need. The Father is the one that instructs those that he created, his sons and his daughters. And we get that through Jesus. I'm looking forward to not only sharing this weekend the rest of the book of Jonah, but also the words to the churches from Jesus himself as we humble ourselves as the church, not because everything is our fault, but because we have the hope of Christ, because we have the light of the world. When you have the light and you're standing in darkness, you gotta shine bright. And so Jesus speaks to us, those of us that are following him, and he says, I want you to burn brightly. I want you to shine brighter than ever before. Let's pray into this today, that God would help us to bring restoration and reconciliation and maybe it is that he'll help us to see we can never give up on people. It doesn't mean that we don't change our disposition or our position in helping people. But we've got to know, I, my creed is I never give up on anybody because God's never given up on me. And that's just how it is. But I want wisdom and how it is that I go about ministering to and helping each person that he's put into my life. Let's pray into that today. Would you go ahead and join me as we do that? Father, we thank you today for your example we thank you for your teaching. God, we thank you that um, restoration and reconciliation is something that you do. It's not something that we can muster up and make happen, but we do need to follow your principles. And so, Father, I just pray that you would give us your heart. I thank you, Lord, that you showed us that we need to be like children to depend upon you. Lord, we're helpless. We place ourselves in front of you. And I pray, God, that we would deal with our sin, that we would recognize how serious it is to cause others to stumble. We say no to that. Help us, Lord, to, to metaphorically cut our hand off, gouge our eyes out, just take it real seriously. And we also, Lord, pray that you give us your heart, the heart that, goes, that leaves the 99 goes after the one. And also, Lord, that we bring restoration and reconciliation to those that have wandered off. Lord, maybe that's somebody watching me today, and I just pray that they would hear your heart, that, that not only would you leave the 99 to go after the one, but maybe they need their eyes open to see that they are the one, and many people have been commissioned by you to go after them. I pray that prodigals, the people that have wandered away and walked astray all over this region, all over this nation, Lord, in these days we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon your church to go after people and not just wash our hands and wipe our hands of those that have walked away. We say no to that. Our job is not to determine someone's eternal destination. It's to contend for people that they would walk with you and be with you forever.
So we thank you, Lord, for giving us your heart today. In Jesus' mighty name, God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.